Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. On Monday evening at the Foreign Correspondents Club, Claire Hollingworth celebrated her 105th birthday. This is the British journalist whose scoop was Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939 that marked the start of the Second World War. Five years ago, I had the chance to chat with Claire and also her great-nephew, Patrick Garrett, who's written a book about her life called Of Fortunes and War, Claire Hollingworth, First of the female war correspondents. In this week's programme, I include parts of those interviews and also chat with American journalist Francis Moriarty. But first, Patrick Garrett tells me about where Claire Hollingworth originated. Well, I mean, as a child, she was she was never really around. She was always abroad, so she was a bit of a legend. We heard of Claire. She used to send you know, exotic presents from abroad. I remember an Arab headdress coming once, and uh, so there always things the dressing up box as a kid. But she was more of a legend. I think I first met her uh, when she came back from China. So. That would have been in about 1976. I had a visit to her flat in London and uh, we drove around London. Uh, I remember we passed the Soviet embassy and uh, you know, she pointed out it was uh, full of spies. And I remember that fascinated me as a kid and you know, nine years old thinking, you know, well, if, if it's full of spies, why aren't we doing something about it? And we went for um, dinner in a Chinese restaurant. Claire was in, um, enthused about tofu. And um, I, I remember uh, we thought it was going to be something exotic and uh, there were frankly a little disappointed yeah but, but we, we had common interests I mean I, I've always been interested in aviation and uh, I'm a pilot myself and uh, so um, yeah Claire and I could always talk about uh, military aviation and uh, she was at that time defence correspondent of the Telegraph and so uh, as a kid she used to go and send me you know, RAF calendars when they came through and uh, obviously at that stage in the Cold War um, I guess the RAF had pretty big PR and recruiting budgets so you know uh, journalists in the defence industry uh, had fairly full mailboxes of goodies and stuff so those normally ended up uh, as posters on my wall but yeah you know, we, we shared a common interest in that and then um, you know I went into uh, journalism myself uh, I would always aim to meet Claire whenever there's an opportunity if she used to come back to Europe every summer uh, and so if, if I could get down at that time I'd always pop down and visit her in London uh, and then you know, there were times when I was working uh, I remember one time we uh, both happened to coincide in Paris I'd just come back from covering the uh, um, genocide in Rwanda and Zaire and she was just coming through Paris to visit her pad there and so we just coincided and uh, spent three very pleasant days just uh, carousing the cafes of Paris together and uh, at that time she'd uh, I think she just broken her hip so she was actually on crutches but still you know that did not deter her uh, we'd have a glass at uh, one cafe and then Claire would decide it was not up to scratch and uh, she'd pick up her crutches and we'd shuffle down the street and look for somewhere better so we had a, we had uh, we had some fun time together. So you were initially a journalist and then you uh, switched over to aviation? That's correct, yes. I, I, mean, I did about 15 years in uh, television and print journalism um, in uh, well, Germany, in Scotland, uh, Russia and Hong Kong. In terms of her early years, can you tell me, uh, being a member of her family, I mean, when she was growing up, her childhood, who, who were her parents and what sort of background did she come from? Um, I mean... It, in the media, she's often portrayed as coming from a very rich, aristocratic family, but that really isn't true. Um, I mean, her grandparents uh, were not badly off. They uh, were partners in a boot and shoe uh, manufacturing company, Leicester. Her father was um, you know, basically a traveling salesman for that company. I think ultimately he got the uh, title of marketing director uh, or marketing manager. Um, but um, you know, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of the um, the hostelries and uh, taverns of, of Britain where he, could, where he traveled, you know looking for customers and uh, signing contracts uh, for the company uh, so you know he was uh, by no means a grand figure uh, he however you know married 
the uh, daughter uh, of the owners of the company, so perhaps a good career move. Claire was born in a little house, um, a little suburb of Leicester, nothing grand. And uh, so, you know, what one reads occasionally in biographies of Claire about, you know, this this uh, hunt ball lifestyle really isn't. Um, it was a bit of exaggeration, I think. I was not at school until, until I was quite old, but my mummy used to tell me everything she could from the papers and from wasn't the BBC in those days I can't remember what it was but she got lots of news for me so you started your love of news at a very young age yeah she was actually um, quite left-wing in her 20s. Her first fiancé uh, comes from a, uh, apparently quite a, a grand family, but um, you know, maybe that was where the, uh, the Hunt Ball uh, stories come from. But she became quite left-wing. She was a prospective parliamentary candidate for the Labour Party uh, in the 30s, which really was quite early. I mean, the first women had only, uh, hadn't even got the vote when Claire was first born. And when, when she was approaching 18, they were only just getting the right to vote at that age. So uh, to be a parliamentary candidate was... I think quite something. She joined the League of Nations Union um, and was one of their uh, workers. And again, I think she was the first woman to hold that post. So that was very pioneering of her at, the, at that time to look at becoming a parliamentary candidate. So what happened? She lost or she decided not to continue with a political career? No, the uh, the war came along. Uh, and uh, so that was um, in uh, late 30s. Uh, she was nominated in the Melton constituency. Um, the war came along. She got involved with um, refugee work before the war. That was in March 39. She was in Poland. And um, that's um, the side of her life that really has not been covered. I guess it's eclipsed by the um, events uh, in September when Germany invaded Poland. But actually, in her book, she only devotes half a page to the story of the refugee work where the organisation she headed in Poland saved between two and 3,000 lives, which uh, I think it, well, you know, it was an amazing achievement. And uh, But it's just been eclipsed by perhaps the bigger story of the um, the war. But I mean, certainly, you know, having spent the last five years researching her life uh, for a book, uh, it's an area that I've uncovered and have been quite amazing amazed at uh, the amount of work she was doing um, on the border of Poland with refugees who were escaping from uh, Czechoslovakia, which by then had already been taken over by the Nazis. So she'd been working with refugees. Prior to that, she'd been a parliamentary candidate. So in fact, when she got the news story for which perhaps arguably she's most famous, uh, the scoop of the Second World War, she had in fact been only a journalist for a few weeks. She'd been, uh, she'd been a journalist for the Telegraph for a week. I think we can safely say it was her first proper job as a journalist when she uh, uh, came over to Poland. So the Telegraph must have been very happy to take her on with that, that, with that kind of story. Indeed. I mean, it, uh, well, I think it was lucky for her too. But, I mean, she got no byline um, um, at the time. Um, it wasn't the done thing. Uh, the very few newspapers actually credited who the correspondent was. Uh, so it simply says, from our own correspondent in Katowice. So even though it was her big scoop, her name's not actually on the front page. <laughs> Tell me about that story. I mean, it's been uh, written about many, many times. Uh, it's the one that she's most famous for. But talk me through uh, exactly what happened. She was in Katowice. She then made a shopping trip, as far as I understand. 
Yeah, I mean, there are actually two stories. It often gets sort of tumbled into one story. But uh, three days before the war began, she uh, went across the border into Germany. Um, it was open to flagged cars. And because uh, she was staying with her friend, uh, the British Consul General in Katowice, uh, she borrowed his car. It was a flagged car, a uh, diplomatic vehicle. She was able to drive across the border into Germany. And uh, she just uh, went for a scout around. She um, brought uh, went for a bit of shopping, uh, things that weren't easily available in Poland at the time and uh, as she uh, was driving back um, she spotted in a valley uh, mass tanks uh, which was obviously the sign that this was um, going to be one of the uh, main invasion points. Now when she was talking to you about you know obviously her work in Poland I mean did she talk also about the practicalities of getting the story out? She spoke with me about how uh, she borrowed a car uh, uh, on a pretext basically to go down to the uh, German-Polish frontier. And with great luck and timing, I mean, she's a person who recognized that part of being a good reporter is luck. Uh, but luck is also getting yourself into a position at a time when if luck were to occur, you could take advantage of it. And she, she had that knack, that ability to realize where a story might be and to get herself down there in case it was there. And in the case of World War II, it was. And she managed to spot tanks uh, massing and uh, on the border and realized that an invasion was about to come. She knew where she should be and she knew how to get there and she had the contacts to make it happen. And, uh, uh, and she was obviously a person who was a force of nature. I mean, people just uh, recognized her and uh, she didn't come from a high class level in Britain, but she came from a very solid middle class uh, in, in Britain. And, and she just sort of knew how to deal with people in an appropriate way and they responded to it. But, but, that just meant from the high to the low. She just got on with people and was interested in people. That her, she just had that that core journalistic uh, um, drive, which is an interest in other people to know what they're really about, what makes them tick, and to get them to open up. Writing in the Daily Telegraph on August the twenty ninth, nineteen thirty nine, she reported: Today, I crossed the frontier between Polish and German Upper Silesia, and spent several hours in Boyton, Hindenburg, and Gliwice. The frontier is still closed to local traffic. Everywhere I saw signs of the most intense military activity. In the two miles between Hindenburg and Gliwice, I was passed by 65 military dispatch riders on motorcycles. The only cars to be seen were those belonging to the military. Claire Hollingworth sent the story to Hugh Carlton Green, who was the Daily Telegraph's correspondent in Warsaw. He sent it on to London. Three days later, the German army invaded Poland. Recalling that day, Claire Hollingworth was quoted in the Daily Telegraph and by the BBC as saying, I remember telephoning Robin Hankey, the secretary at the embassy in Warsaw, and saying, The war has begun. He said, Rubbish. They're still negotiating. And I said, Can't you hear it? So I hung the telephone out of the window so he could listen to the Germans invading. Was it difficult sometimes being a woman journalist? Yes, I think it was at the beginning. Tell me about why it was. Well, because in those days, women just stayed at home, had children and looked after the house. That's why. You, you as her great-nephew, know her very well. Can you tell me about that time? I and mean, we, we know, you know, that, that she was writing this for The Telegraph, but she'd also been working with the refugees. 
Was there a great sense of trepidation? Was there was there fear? How did she describe it personally? I mean, she always um, one of her hallmarks is she always says that um, she's not uh, affected by fear of uh, of shot and shell, as she usually puts it. Uh, but no, Claire really just doesn't seem to suffer from the, the fears that most normal people um, suffer from. I mean, you know, uh, journalists who are with her in Vietnam, etc., and reading their contemporary accounts of of being with her. Um, I think I think her philosophy was just to say, you've always got to think. That the bullet will get someone else, not you. And as long as you assume that, um, then then you, then you don't panic. Uh, and it seemed to work for her. Did, you didn't worry about the noise from the shells or the bullets? I didn't like it, but I didn't worry about it. I just put cotton wool in my ears. She was quite gutsy, wasn't she? Oh, she had a lot of uh, what Americans would call chutzpah. Uh, no question about it. I mean, she was well into her 70s when she flew in a, a jet fighter aircraft. Um, she took herself out to dangerous positions, uh, not only positions that were near danger, but that were truly dangerous. Uh, and she always had a wonderful respect for the people that she interviewed. She was punctual. She believed in punctuality. Uh, and punctual to her meant arriving uh, well ahead of the time that you were supposed to be there. And the rank of the person determined how far ahead she would show up. And and she really had a, a respect for, for example, working soldiers. Yeah, she would go out with them. She recognized the danger that they were facing every day. And there's all kinds of examples of, of, of people suddenly receiving through some kind of mail or, 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 or service of delivery, uh, you know, a bottle of scotch or a six pack of beers or whatever sent out to, to the people who had helped her and, and uh, helped guard her while she was doing her reporting work. So she always showed respect to her interviewees. Uh, and, and that didn't matter on rank. She would always do something to to recognize their work and to say thank you. After the war, um, I've heard about her knowing spies who then escaped to Russia. So could we go into a bit of the, the Cold War post post the Second World War? I mean, she knew uh, Donald McLean of the four Cambridge spies, Blunt, Philby, Burgess and McLean. Um, Donald uh, uh, McLean and Guy Burgess were the first to hop uh, to the east uh, in 1951. Uh, Claire had met uh, Donald before he was posted to Cairo. And when she was in Cairo, uh, they were virtually neighbours to uh, Donald, his wife, Melinda. So they knew them quite well. They were witness to Donald um, spinning out of control with alcohol uh, and being sent back in disgrace uh, to the UK. So, so he was with the British Foreign Office? or McLean was, uh, yes, a senior uh, Foreign Office official in the uh, the Cairo Embassy at the time. In Cairo, he uh, hit the bottle hard uh, and his life spun out of control. He was sent back to the UK, uh, given a new job back in the UK. Um, and then in 51, he and Guy uh, Burgess uh, fled. There was always the assumption a third man had tipped them off, that they were under investigation. Uh, suspicions had been raised. Claire and her husband Jeffrey uh, were immediately onto the story because they actually knew um, Donald and Melinda very well. Um, Melinda, of course, had been abandoned. Uh, she'd got two kids at the time. She was pregnant uh, with a third. And the baby was born a couple of weeks after her husband disappeared. It was assumed he'd uh, ended up east, but nobody knew. And uh, uh, so Claire and her husband um, did their best to search um, for him. But they uh, befriended Melinda, uh, and um, there seemed to be something of a shoulder to cry on during that period because, you know, there she was. Um, husband disappeared. Uh, media encamped around her house and uh, her just uh, just given birth to a third child, no idea where the, uh, the husband was. Mysterious postcards arrived allegedly uh, from him uh, and um, so Claire in any way um, stuck with uh, Melinda. They even went on holiday together in France as, uh, as a family um, and uh, in the end, in, um, uh, a year or so later, Melinda just to sort of avoid 
avoid the media attention, moved to Geneva, stayed in touch. And then in uh, 53, uh, um, suddenly um, Melinda also vanished with the kids. Uh, and by then, Claire actually knew um, Melinda's family. Uh, Melinda's mother even ended up staying with Claire and Jeffrey in Paris. Uh, and um, so that was the end of the story. Although um, Melinda's mum, in the end, when she cleared up the flat in Geneva, assumed her daughter was going to come back. And uh, so left Claire with various goods, a, a bathroom scales and a fur coat belonging to Melinda, assuming she'd need them again. And uh, uh, Melinda actually um, did end up uh, leaving Russia it wasn't a happy time for her in Russia but uh, she never actually came back to claim the coat or the bathroom scales Claire always points out Mr Harold Philby on the right holds a press conference to deny charges that he was involved in the disappearance of Burgess and McLean the 43 year old former foreign office diplomat has challenged his accuser an MP to repeat the charges outside the commons Mr. Philby, Mr. McMillan, the foreign secretary, said there was no evidence that you were the so-called third man who allegedly tipped off Burgess and McLean. Are you satisfied with that clearance that he gave you? Yes, I am. Well, if there was a third man, were you, in fact, the third man? No, I was not. Do you think there was one? No comment. Claire also knew Kim Philby, had known him since the 30s. So he was uh, the third of the four spies. And Claire used to see him in Beirut. He'd actually inherited her previous job for The Economist in Beirut. Whenever Claire was passing through the Middle East, she'd see him. And she was around when he disappeared from Beirut. Nobody knew where he went, but Claire put two and two together that... He had disappeared on a Soviet freighter crossing to Odessa. Uh, although I must admit, in my researches in Russia, I was in Russia in the 80s, and so I met the Soviet agent who was actually his minder in um, London, and he denied that that was the route. But at the same time, in the in the world of espionage, you don't necessarily get straight answers. But uh, over a curry, he disputed that that was uh, the uh, the route he'd taken. But who who knows? Uh, so yes, yeah, so Claire had multiple connections to uh, the Soviet spies, and interestingly, yes, uh, when Philby arrived in Russia, he ended up having an affair with. Um, Donald McLean's wife and uh, and then he Philby had a string of affairs in his life uh, he then broke it off and Paul Melinda ended up having to return to Donald and in the end she um, returned um, left the Soviet Union and was last known of in uh, New York there were uh, reports that she died this year but uh, or last year in the, in the last 12 months anyway but uh, um, no one really knows what's happened to her well, Mr. Philby the disappearance of Burgess and McLean is almost as much of a mystery today as it was when they went away about four years ago or more. Can you shed any light on it at all? No, I can't. In the first place, I'm debarred by the Official Secrets Act from saying anything that might disclose to unauthorized persons information derived from my position as a former government official. In the second place... Why did you decide to become a journalist? Because I heard the BBC and I found it frightfully interesting and I wrote to them must have been very bad grammar and said I find your uh, um, work very very interesting and I'm not talking about money if you ever need anything from here I'll always go to some trouble to help you get it. I first met Claire shortly after I came to Hong Kong and joined the Foreign Correspondents Club, where she was already a fixture. Uh, she was unmistakable. She's a petite person. Uh, she always pulled her hair back in a bun, had the same pair of no-nonsense uh, eyeglasses, and wore uh, a safari suit, uh, which is very suitable for her work as a reporter in many different uh, parts of Asia, uh, with you know the little pocket flaps, short sleeve, 
uh, pants, um, very sensible shoes. And uh, I know that every morning she would get up and uh, uh, check the papers and her own sources, whatever they were, and call the UK to her employer and uh, and give her daily view on whatever was happening. And they would say, thank you, Claire. And she did that every day until very late in her life, as far as I know. Um, she was very switched on. And whenever I spoke with her, she had always had two basic questions. What's going on and what's going to happen next? And I think that really sums up her, her way of living and, and her view as, as a journalist. Algiers, a busy piece of metropolitan France transplanted across the Mediterranean. Frenchmen have lived and ruled here since 1830. More than one million Frenchmen in Algiers rub elbows with more than 10 million Muslims. Man on horseback, symbol of France, stands in Algiers' main square. The paper her husband was working for in, um, in Paris, the News Chronicle, it folded in 1960 and it just coincided with um, a spike in violence in the uh, civil war in Algeria. Charles de Gaulle, the grandeur of France and a grinding six-year war in Algeria. All Algeria is divided into three forces, the Muslim natives, the French settlers, the French army. Over these, de Gaulle, hero of World War II. His job, balancing the forces, restoring peace. That was when Claire went off and basically having had quite a quiet 50s. In the 1950s, she was um, uh, buying property, she was collecting art. Uh, she was writing, but mainly freelance. But um, suddenly with her husband out of a job and uh, a hot war in Algeria uh, on their back door, they, um, uh, that was where she went. And suddenly she was um, back in the action. Uh, she won a string of uh, journalism prizes. And it seemed to be you know, mainly just because of her bravery. She went places in Algeria where most people wisely probably feared to go. She was in the Casbah. It was a time where hundreds of bombs were going off every day. I mean, the, the number just seems unbelievable. Uh, the number of random killings that both sides were perpetrating during that period. And uh, Claire um, took it in her stride and um, uh, made some amazing contacts uh, on both sides uh, of the conflict. So um, in, in a sense, I think you know, that perhaps did more for her journalistic credentials even than her Second World War scoop. So this was a time when Algeria was looking to break away from France? That's correct. But it was, um, there were so many different sites that there were the, uh, the French settlers in Algeria who didn't want that to happen. There were the French government troops that were simply trying to go and, um, uh, keep the peace. And, uh, there were Algerians who wanted to stay with France and Algerians who wanted to break away. So it was, it was a, a very violent time. I mean, the people who were against, um, the French troops, they would have campaigns and one day they would go out and kill postmen or another day it would be hairdressers. And uh, anyone who seemed to be breaking a strike or in any way supporting the government would be shot that day. Very sort of clever but cruel campaigns were being arranged. In terms of um, her news capabilities, what do you think that she can teach modern journalists? I think that it's just the value of being intrepid, of swallowing your own fears and going out to where the story really is. Uh, and not just relying on feeds. She's a person who, if there was a front, she went out to the front. She wanted to see for herself. And I think it's that doggedness, it's that desire and willingness to be a witness to the story, uh, to bear witness to the story, and and to uh, in a, and, and put your own print on it in in the process of doing it. Uh, not distorting the story by to put on a print, but by getting the story as fully and accurately as you can and and 
and speaking it in the voice of the people whom you're whom you're covering. I, I think those are the things that uh, that made her special. It's the integrity and the doggedness. Uh, and and I think that once she got the bit between her teeth, um, she just went with it, and and she impressed people at all levels. I mean, I remember talking to her about her relationship with Charles de Gaulle during the war in Algeria, uh, which she covered, and that was a nasty, uh, nasty war. Uh, and she would go right down into the shoof, where, uh, uh, where, where, into the marketplaces, where, where dangerous positions to go in into the bazaars. And, and she would find people who would help her and, and, and ferry her in and ferry her out and protect her while she was there. And, and she was on a, a first-name basis with Charles de Gaulle. In French, she used the tutoyer, which is the familiar form of addressing somebody. And he was the head of the Free French Forces, so he was, he was no small guy, and, and later president of France. And, and she had that kind of relationship with people. Uh, she just assumed she was everybody's equal and, and, uh, and respected them as her equal, and that's how it all worked. Taking it into the 60s and 70s, what was Claire up to? Claire, after the war, she was uh, mainly working freelance, a bunch of different publications. Um, she rejoined Day Telegraph in 1967, uh, and um, there she was pretty much a firefighter, so wherever there was trouble, Claire was. So it was Aden, uh, Borneo, um, Vietnam. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Uh, the Middle East, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. So she was everywhere. I mean, they keep a card index at the Daily Telegraph, and uh, she has probably one of the fullest card indexes where it's every month she's you know, in a dozen different places. <laughs> However, a slight shift of gear when she moved to China in 73. So that was a very different story for her because previously she's always been covering action. You could probably see with your eyes tanks and bombs and, uh, and planes. And uh, the story in China, of course, uh, you know, the final year of, of Mao's China uh, was very different, uh, more of a political story, more of reading between the lines and uh, um, trying to guess where, what was going on. Uh, the, uh, obviously, the, the Western community, the, uh, the very small media community, there were no Americans accredited at that time, uh, only the very first Western correspondents there, uh, and the diplomats were trying to work out what was going on and what the succession was going to be. Um, it was clear that Mao was ill, but uh, you know how long he would last and what would come thereafter. And uh, uh, so that was uh, a very interesting, uh, but a very different kind of story for Claire. So Claire Hollingworth arrived in Beijing in 1973. Uh, she, uh, her first trip in 72, but she was based there from 73, 73 to 76, yeah. Now, how has her 105th birthday been marked at the Foreign Correspondents Club here? Well, it was a very nice ceremony. Uh, the, the staff, of course, are quite endeared to her. Uh, she had a number of friends. Uh, the former director of broadcasting in Hong Kong, Chung Man Yi, uh, knew that the birthday was coming. They'd been close for many years. And... Uh, 
uh, she actually called me up and said, do you know if there's going to be a 105th party? And I said, well, I assume so. Let me check. And I did. And uh, Gilbert Chang, the manager of the FCC, who's been manager for more than – well, he's been an employee for more than 40 years, so he's known Claire forever, um, said to me, of, uh, of course, and close friends showed up, people who've known her for a long time, members who were in the club. And Claire knew what was going on. Uh, she's obviously advanced at 105. She's lost her sight for quite a number of years. Um, she still has some hearing if you get up close to her so you can say hello and chat a bit. And she can joke. Uh, somebody said to her, how old do you feel today, Claire? And she said, 14. And uh, uh, she, she still has a sense of spirit and a love of life, and she's very well cared for. Why was it important for you to be a reporter? Because I just enjoyed it. And also, my, I remember my money complaining. I don't know whether it was right that people just said, wrote things they thought people wanted to hear. And you thought it was important to get more facts? Yeah. Get the truth. Happy birthday, Claire Hollingworth, 105. My thanks to Patrick Garrett and Francis Moriarty. Patrick has recently published his biography of Claire called Of Fortunes and War. Claire Hollingworth, first of the female war correspondents. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.